Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 15. The British landings at San Carlos were both a threat and opportunity for the Argentinians. Obviously, allowing the British a toehold on East Falklands was a strategic danger, but now they could concentrate their air attacks on the landing zone and the ships providing support. In their first sorties, the Argentinian Air Force flew over open seas searching for targets and burning precious fuel. Now the landings had altered the odds. They could aim at the warships anchored in Falkland Sound, the waterway between the two islands. More importantly, the pilots could make their final approach over land. They had been exposed over the ocean. It's hard to hide from radar over the sea, but now they could fly the last miles over undulating and in some cases hilly terrain. They would use these mountains and hills to hide from the radar and return to their core training, which had been done over land. They had been forced to learn how to attack ships over open sea as a kind of crash course over the past month, so the pendulum of advantage swung back towards the Argentinians despite the landings. The damage inflicted on the British task force had been unbelievable. Ardent was sunk, Argonaut badly damaged, Antrim brilliant and broadsword all damaged by bombs, which may have failed to explode, but left engineers with a headache. They had to be cleared before the ships could be operational, or at least fully operational. The 21st of May attacks had been carried out at sea level, and most of the Argentinian bombs had not detonated because their fuses were set for higher altitude release. Unfortunately for them, they were going to make that mistake again. If the Argentinians had attacked on the day of the landings with properly fused bombs, it's estimated around 25% of the English ships would have been sunk. But the bad news for the English was that there were actually worse days to come. The Argentinians were facing a hail of anti-aircraft fire and missiles when they flew in for their attacks. The Skyhawk and Mirage pilots had decided they should fly at least the last 150 miles at only 10 feet above the water. Sometimes the sea spray blinded them and the first order of duty when they arrived back at their bases was to wash down the wings to remove the salt. Altimeters don't work at 10 feet, so it was seat of the pants flying and the Argentinians were very good at that. A Skyhawk pilot explained the technique. The missiles don't lock onto you until they've travelled for about 200 metres, so you have the amount of time to hone in on your target, said one. Then you veer from side to side as hard as possible until you're within launching range. You dive straight towards the ship, release the bomb at 150 metres, then keep travelling straight as low as possible. Many of the planes clipped the masts of the English ships they flew so low, and the bombs had delayed fuses, so that the pilots could escape before the blast went off, if it ever did. Then they had a bigger problem, evading the Harriers as they headed home to the mainland. There's been a bit of a myth that's built up that these pilots were too afraid to fight. The reality is the Argentinians were probably as good as their enemy, and they actually believed they were better than their trainers, the Israelis. The Harriers, though, were taking their toll in turn on the Mirages and Skyhawks, and the Argentinians preferred to avoid dogfights. Their mission was not to shoot down English planes, it was to bomb their ships and soldiers, then make it home so that they could come back later. The British had a problem. It was suicidal to keep the warships out in the sound, so they pulled back into the shelter of San Carlos during the day or went out to sea. They had another problem. Their rapier missile batteries, which were supposed to fight off the Argentinian Air Force, were failing. The Sea Kings had dropped these, a remarkable effort, on the land, but now the British found that eight of their launches were unserviceable, at least in the short term. 
The long exposure to the sea had damaged their electronics and moving spare parts from the ships to the batteries was a challenge. Other snags were reported. The alloy pins that retained the missiles on their slides were snapping, then dumping the expensive missile headfirst into the soft peat. It had been almost a year since the operators had conducted live-fire exercises using the rapier, and they were taking a lot of time trying to relearn how to conduct visual tracking. Yes, the rapier had scored three hits on the day of the landings, the 21st of May, but they'd fired ten of these missiles, expecting at least a 50% and more like an 80% success rate. Admiral Woodward signaled testily from the Hermes. I am sure that the rapier detachments are doing all they can. However, their performance yesterday was totally unsatisfactory. Put a bomb under them before they get one on top of them. The Argentinians had lost 16 planes on the first day of landings. The British spent the night trying to defuse unexploded bombs. The Argonaut was towed into anchorage behind the Plymouth, with her crew laboring below decks pumping out flooded spaces. Then her lighting and all her auxiliary power failed. Torches came out, and it was discovered that one of the unexploded bombs had ruptured a diesel fuel tank. The sea had spilled in and polluted the engines with salt. The engines were stopped and cleaned, while other teams worked on repairing the holes in the ship's side. Stopping him with mattresses and other good World War II stuff like that, said one engineer. At dawn on the 22nd of May, Argonaut was still too far out in the sound for safety, and the captain, Lehman, called for a tow. Eventually, three landing craft arrived and slowly pulled Argonaut up the channel. She finally dropped anchor between two assault ships. Bomb disposal teams set off a controlled explosion to defuse one of the ordinances in the boiler room, but the forward bomb was another matter. They would have to seal the hole, pump out the water, and then try and defuse the 1,000-pound mega-weapon. It was a Saturday. It was bright and clear. Another good day for the Argentinian Air Force. The British sailors and troops stood by their weapons, waiting for the attacks to begin as the shuttle of helicopters and landing craft continued. In the south... A small Argentinian patrol ship was caught by harriers and hit by cannon. The crew headed straight for land and beached. Then two Argentinian C-130s made a run over West Falklands, escorted by six mirages. The British could not engage them in time. But the day passed peacefully enough, and that night the British began vital redeployments. HMS Glamorgan steamed in to take the damaged Antrim's place, while HMS Brilliant escorted the bright white liner Canberra out of the bay along with a string of supply ships. The Navy was now unloading the absolute minimum of store ships, terrified of the Argentinian Air Force power, and this was a serious blow to 3 Commander Brigade. Brigadier Julian Thompson was not happy. His planning was based on the assumption that the brigade's logistics support would remain afloat and readily available in San Carlos water. Instead, a vast brigade maintenance area built up at Ajax Bay with the Navy sending their storeships there as quickly as possible, landed by Mexifloat pontoons. Each night, a convoy of supply ships would sail into the anchorage and offload for a few hours, then head off long before dawn for the safety of the open sea east beyond the battle group. That drastically delayed three commando, and back in England, the politicians were beginning to grumble. Sunday the 23rd of May, and another sunny bright morning. Some of the soldiers and sailors were beginning to wonder if the Argentinian Air Force was ever coming back. The day started well enough for the British. Harriers caught one of the Augusta choppers and two pumas carrying ammunition to the Port Howard garrison, 
destroying all three. Amazingly, none of the crew on board the choppers died, but some were injured. The Argentinian Army's helicopter force based on the Falklands was now reduced to 10 serviceable aircraft out of the 19 originally available. HMS Antelope's Lynx gunship crippled an enemy freighter with a sea skewer missile. Brilliant and Yarmouth trapped and forced to ground another Argentinian supply ship, the Monsunin. The dangerous task of attacking the British landings was left to the Skyhawks and Daggers of the 4th, 5th and 6th fighter groups, with a little help from the remaining few naval Skyhawk pilots. It's thought that only 33 sorties reached the San Carlos area on that day, and the Argentinian attacks became more ragged. HMS Antelope's Lynx spotted four Skyhawks moving north up Falkland Sound as they flew back from checking on the ship that beached the day before. The four disappeared behind Fanning Head and split into two pairs. The first came in low from the east as the ship's guns opened fire, and they turned away. HMS Antelope's pursuing Seacat missile hit one. It blew up. Then the two other Skyhawks arrived from the north, screaming low over the Antelope and made for HMS Broadsword. A bomb hit the frigate aft but didn't explode, while the second Skyhawk was hit by Antelope's Oilicon cannon and hit its mast flying at full speed around 400 miles an hour. The aircraft disintegrated with a loud crack. But more Skyhawks appeared and Antelope was hit by two 1,000-pound bombs. One went through the starboard side and the second hit just below the bridge and ploughed into the petty officer's mess, killing a steward and wounding six others. By 2.30 in the afternoon, Antelope was trying to deal with the unexploded bombs. Her ship's company were all moved to the forecastle. After a few attempts, the bomb exploded, killing one of the disposal team members and wounding a second. A huge blaze spread quickly through the ship, billowing smoke and cascading sparks in the breeze. All the landing craft nearby rushed to help. It was a hurried evacuation because there was every likelihood that the magazine would go up. Captain Nick Tobin was one of the last off the ship, and a few minutes later, the anchorage was shaken by a series of explosions as the magazines on Antelope went up. It was the end of HMS Antelope. It took all night for the broken ship to sink. It slid below the water in two bits into the sound. For the men ashore, it was a terrible moment. They had witnessed its death throes for hours on end, None has seen a ship sink before. This was a bitter experience, and each one suddenly realized how costly this war for the Falklands was becoming. Admiral Woodward was in a spot, and he conducted a tactical discussion by telephone with his commanders. Seven Argentinian aircraft had been shot down, but the British had lost another ship. Captain Black of Invincible and Captain Coward of Brilliant urged Woodward to bring the aircraft carriers inshore, that meant four pairs of Harriers would be overhead instead of two, but Woodward refused. This became one of the central points of disagreement about tactical use of aircraft carriers for the rest of the war. Many believed they were useless standing hundreds of miles away from the conflict. They should be around 50 miles offshore, and that was the theory. Despite the war underway, Woodward believed that Hermes and Invincible's safety was paramount. If either one of these aircraft carriers was lost, it would be disastrous. That night, a Harrier plunged into the sea five miles ahead of one of the carriers. The pilot was lost. The next morning, Skyhawks were reported at 0930, and they hit the landing ships, Sir Galahad and Sir Lancelot, but none of the three bombs exploded. The civilian sailors on board these two ships rushed off in undue haste, said one naval officer. Meanwhile, the rapiers were fixed and firing. 
Perched behind their camouflage trackers high on the hilltops, they hit three enemy aircraft. Fearless's Beaufort AA guns hit two more, and the Harriers down three. Six of the twelve attacking Argentinian planes had been shot down. Then four Mirages were spotted approaching the north of Pebble Island, and the Harriers intercepted them. Three of these were shot down by a combination of Sidewinder missiles and cannon fire. Things seemed to be improving, although Brigadier Thompson was growing increasingly concerned by the slow build-up of his logistics. The floating logistics plan was abandoned because of the effectiveness of the Argentinian air attacks, and because the rapiers' generators ran on petrol, and a lot of it, there was now also a chronic fuel shortage. The naval officers were asking pointed questions about what the landing force was actually doing, which was a bit rude, to say the least, considering that the Navy could not speed up its own processing of logistics. Worse, there was also confusion about orders. Brigadier Thompson was waiting for his senior officer, Major General Moore, and Fire Brigade to arrive to hand over control of the landings, but Thatcher's cabinet back in the UK wanted action immediately. Public attention was focused on the air-sea battle in which the Royal Navy appeared to be suffering badly. The War Cabinet was impatient for evidence of some kind of British movement. Unfair pressure from UK, wrote a brigade staff officer in his journal. It was now four days since the landings and the Marines and Paris were lingering around the anchorage, watching others fight a battle of attrition. Thompson met his officers on shore, briefing them to look east, get ready for the attack on Port Stanley. The SAS would reinforce the high ground around Mount Kent, he said, then units would begin moving in that direction. Nothing was said about Goose Green, basically in the opposite direction, where a major battle was going to take place that many veterans of this conflict say should never have happened. At last light that evening, suddenly two Skyhawks burst over St. Carlos settlement at very low level and dropped parachute-retarded bombs directly over 40 commanders' trenches. Two men died, killed by the direct hits, three were wounded, but the others were dug in so deeply that the soft of Falkland's peat meant the effects of the blasts were muted. Thompson watched the growing pile of material at Ajax Bay nervously. There was nowhere else to go, but one well-aimed bomb there would have caused chaos. Then the worst day of all dawned, May 25th, Argentina's National Day. The British knew that this was going to be the day that the pilots and possibly ground forces would exert themselves. It was a day of pride. The first wave of attacks were driven off. Two mirages were chased from Falkland Sound by Harriers, then shot down by Sea Dart missiles fired from HMS Coventry. A third was downed a short while later. But the Argentinians were about to deliver one of the most crippling double blows of the campaign. At 2 p.m., the crew of Coventry were busy as usual as the ship was at her station north of Pebble Island, in high spirits after seeing three planes taken out, when her captain, David Hart Duck, asked his officers what they thought about moving the ship. He said Coventry was in a perfect position for a targeted attack, and he was right. The kills of the morning, though, convinced all that they were doing fine, so Hart Dyke decided to remain where he was. Air raid warnings began soon afterwards, and the ship was at action stations once more. HMS Coventry, with the escorting broadsword half a mile astern, was steaming at 12 knots on her Tyne cruising engines, building up to full speed. The sea dart system locked onto the attackers heading her way, but then they lost the signal. Captain Hart Dyke was sitting in his high chair in the operations room and said, Where the hell are they then? And he peered at the radar screen. I can't see them. 
A moment later, two Skyhawks streaked over the contours of Pebble Island and flew down to deck level, heading straight for the Coventry. Every automatic weapon opened fire, and the Skyhawks fired back with their cannon. The Skyhawks changed direction heading towards the broadsword. On the frigate, the Seawolf was switched on. Its computer examined the two incoming planes, found it too difficult to decide what to do, and then switched itself off. Broadsword's crew flattened themselves on her deck and waited for the inevitable. A loud clang indicated that a single bomb had hit the ship and bounced through the flight deck, destroying a Lynx helicopter, but it also did not explode. Seawolf suddenly switched itself on again and tracked a second pair of Skyhawks closing in, but just as the aimer prepared to fire, HMS Coventry swung across Broadsword's bow. Captain Hart Dyke had ordered a sharp starboard turn to present the smallest possible target to the incoming aircraft. Seawolf could not fire. But the sea dart did and missed. While Coventry's 4.5 gun was firing continuously, every automatic weapon was aimed at these two planes. The Skyhawks dropped four bombs. One landed astern, but the others smashed into the port side, tore into the ship, and this time they exploded. HMS Coventry had been mortally wounded. Captain Hart Dyke passed out, then recovered and found himself surrounded by smoke and wreckage. One bomb had hit immediately aft and below the ops room, killing nine men in the forward engine room, and now there was havoc above. All I could see around me were people on fire, like candles burning, said Hart Dyke later. He was also badly burned. His face was melting. Flesh hung loose from his hands. Everyone was looking for escape routes, but the ship was a twisted wreck. He fell on his hands and knees to breathe, then ordered the warfare officer, Lieutenant Commander O'Connell, to turn the ship east towards the land. A ridiculous order, thought Hart Dyke a moment later. The Coventry was now listing heavily to port. There was no power. The men were abandoning ship. Some of the life rafts burst when they touched the scorching deck. Helicopters appeared overhead. Every available Sea King and Wessex had been vectored towards the stricken Coventry. Eventually, 283 survivors were picked up. 19 men had died. Dozens were injured. This was the third Type 42 air defence ship put out of action. It was another bitter blow. But it wasn't over. Two Super Air Tendards had taken off from Rio Gallegos, and they were carrying two of the three Exocet missiles the Argentinians had left. They were searching for the aircraft carriers, and about 110 miles north-northeast of Falklands, they began to run short of fuel. The two attendards turned south and located the main battle group about 70 miles east of the islands. A Type 21 frigate, the Ambuscade, spotted them first and alerted the fleet. The attendard pilots had fired both exocets already. One immediately went off course, but the second bore in the red glow of its exhaust clearly visible. Ambuscade opened fire with its 4.5 gun, Olicons, PGMGs, everything. The British ships then fired chaff and a Lynx helicopter swooped in as a kind of decoy, but the missile ploughed on. The 13,000-ton container ship Atlantic Conveyor was in its sights and it didn't have chaff. The missile veered sharply mid-air from its course towards the warships and hit the conveyor below the superstructure on the port side. A massive explosion split open the ship, then a fire took hold. The container ship had managed to offload its vital harriers, but still on board were ten Wessex and four giant Chinook helicopters, and all the tents for the landing forces. 
One of the Chinooks was ready for takeoff when the missile hit and just managed to get airborne. The rest of the choppers were on fire, ruined. The sailors abandoned ship. Twelve men had died, including Ian North, a colourful ship's master who called himself Captain Birdseye. In one attack by two super attendards, the Argentinians had dealt the British a major blow with the Chinooks gone. They could lift 80 men each, and Brigadier Thompson's strategic plans for the campaign were in tatters. It is true that from now on the Argentinian Air Force was a spent force to a large extent, but that was hardly consolation. The British had suffered at the hands of a group of pilots who were more effective than the Royal Air Force had imagined. From then on, until a brief surge on the 8th of June, the Argentinian Air Force ended up making many hits and runs. One-third of its fighter strength had been destroyed in these few days, and almost the same number of its pilots lost. There's some dispute about these numbers, but the Argentinians lost 109 aircraft, 31 to Harrier action, and yet the British Sea Dart, Sea Wolf and Sea Cat missiles were woefully inadequate, indirectly causing the crippling of the Glasgow and the loss of the Coventry. The British, however, were in control of San Carlos, and the ground war would begin within days. The music theme for the series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. Or if you'd like to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.